Hey, good morning. How are you? Let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, Revelation chapter 3. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, last book of the Bible, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. That's our text. So open your Bible, navigate on your device. The topic we'll find there, Jesus describes the majority of the believers in the city of Sardis by saying they have a name that they are alive, but they are really dead. The title of our message, The Plight of the Living Dead. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning so far. Now we want to settle in and have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us as the church and as Christians in this church. We believe uh, that Jesus is here ministering because you promised, Lord, that you'd be among the church when it gathered. And uh, we're a church and we've gathered, Lord, and so minister to us, speak to us. Make yourself manifest to us, we pray. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Zombies are alive and well. At least they are in Hollywood. Wikipedia compiled an incomplete list of all the zombie movies ever made. Just looking at those made since the year 2000, I quit counting after I got to 100. Television is riding the zombie wave. Back in October, the season five premiere of AMC's The Walking Dead was one of the highest rated shows in cable television history. Z Nation is a post-apocalyptic zombie series that airs on sci-fi. The series was just renewed for its second season. iZombie is going to premiere soon on the CW network. People cannot get enough of zombies. Those of you who are fans of this genre, don't admit it, but here's one list of the top five zombie titles for you to argue about over lunch today. This is the list from five to one. Number five, World War Z. Number four, Shaun of the Dead. Number three, Dawn of the Dead. Number two, The Walking Dead. And the number one zombie title, 28 Days Later. One more thing, advertisers must think zombies sell. Audi just debuted a commercial in which the auto mechanics are depicted as zombies. I know you've had that experience too. But anyway, I can say that because I come from a family of zombie-like auto mechanics. But anyway, there were no zombies in the church in Sardis. Jesus did say to them, however, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. By the way, since this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and since the Greek word for revelation is apocalypse, could we call this the original zombie apocalypse? What do you think? That'd be my alternate title for this. But anyway, what made these people in Sardis the living dead? More importantly, is it a plight that can happen to us? I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are wanted on earth, not dead, but alive. And number two, you are presented in heaven, not defiled but spotless. Let's take a look at ourselves on the earth, having the life that God intends for us. Commentator John Phillips writes and he says, astronomers tell us that the light from the polar star takes 33 years to reach the earth. That star could have been plunged into darkness 33 years ago. Its light would still be pouring down to the earth. It would be shining in the sky tonight as brightly as if nothing had happened. It could be a dead star shining solely by the light of its brilliant past. The church in Sardis appeared to be shining brightly in the constellation of the seven churches, but it was a dead church shining solely by the light of a brilliant past. 
You've heard and maybe even used the term dead church, or you've used the word dead to describe other institutions or events. There's just something missing. There's a perceived lack of vibrant life, even though there seems to be activity. So let's get forensic and try to discover the cause of death in Sardis. Beginning in verse one, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, have I told you that the word angel means messenger and that it is referring to the pastor of the church? Only every week since we started this series because it keeps coming up in every letter. I would add this week to keep it a little bit fresh that in the Jewish synagogue system, one of the officials was called the angel. Uh, You see, the controversy here is that some people say it was an angel, a supernatural being. They have a hard time wanting to call the pastor an angel. Now, I can see that in my case, but... uh, (laughs) We're talking about a human agent that God is using. In the case of the church, it's the pastor. The seven spirits of God... That's an Old Testament title for God the Holy Spirit. As we commented when we were in chapter one, in Isaiah 11 verse two, the Holy Spirit, who is a person and who is God, is there described by seven characteristics. And so this is an Old Testament name for God the Holy Spirit. Right off the bat, there is a significant emphasis in this opening upon the Holy Spirit in the life of this church, and there should be in every church. Jesus promised his followers on the night before he was crucified, he would send the Holy Spirit. He was going to heaven, but he would send the Holy Spirit. He sent him on the day of Pentecost to empower the work and the witness of the church on the earth. He is just as available to the church today as he ever was. Without reading any further, the believers in Sardis could have started praying for a fresh filling, a new outpouring of God the Holy Spirit. So should we. Now, I don't recommend that you quit listening to a Bible study, but have you had the experience where all of a sudden something was said and the Holy Spirit just took it and brought it to your heart and you realized this is for me? And then you began to pray about it and think about it and maybe 15 minutes later you think, wow, where are we? in this study, Uh, and, and that is something I would recommend. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and he empowers it to your heart. And, and literally, if you're, if you're listening closely, whether you're in Sardis or you're in Hanford, you can say, wow, the Holy Spirit, yeah, I need him more in my life. And so why don't I just think about that? Why don't I just pray about it even right now? Now, Jesus promised he'd give him, he has, and he still is available today. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus encourages believers, children of God, he says, ask and seek and knock. And then he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask and seek and knock for him? So a lot of times we apply those verses to prayer, we're to ask and seek and knock as we pray, but God says, well, yes, that's true, but you're to pray specifically for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and God, who is a good father, will not withhold him, that's the promise. Jesus not only has the Holy Spirit to give, he has gifted men to give, men like the seven stars, the pastors of the seven churches being addressed. The gift of the Holy Spirit 
and gifted men ensure that the church is fully equipped for its work and its witness in the world. This is how Jesus equips the church. He says, the Holy Spirit is here in abundance and there are gifted men to teach the word of God and to lead the church, which is what makes the very next statement so startling. He says, I know your works. You have a name, you are alive, but you are dead. The church gathered for worship Many of its programs and ministries were still going on, but like a star that had died, they were a mere memory of their former light and life. How did it happen? Well, let's see what Jesus said. In verse two, he says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. The first key word that helps us is this word perfect. It means to finish, to accomplish, or to bring to completion. Apparently, there was a lot of unfinished spiritual business in Sardis. We might guess that believers who had once been involved and committed were kicking back in a sort of spiritual retirement. They were resting on previous work without really doing much of anything to serve the Lord. Perhaps others had gotten saved and always thought that at some time in the future, they would get more involved when it was more convenient. That time never came and they had grown content in their procrastination, maybe just continuing that same idea that, well, you know, a year from now, 10 years from now, when I retire, whatever, uh, and that time just never was going to come. For whatever reasons, ministries were being abandoned or at least they were not being staffed by spirit-led, spirit-filled believers. It wasn't all bad. To borrow a famous line from the Princess Bride, Sardis was only mostly dead because Jesus mentioned there were a few things which remain, he said, that are ready to die. A few things still had spiritual light and life because as we will see, there was a remnant, a small group, getting up every day and still pressing forward for Jesus Christ. The church was dead with a few things remaining and they might yet rise up by doing two things. Number one, being watchful. Number two, strengthening the things which remained. The need for watchfulness would strike a nerve with Sardians. Here's why. Sardis was built high on a hill. I think the elevation was around 1,500 feet with sheer cliffs that made her nearly impregnable to attack. I said nearly because at least twice in her history, Sardis had been conquered because trusting in that exalted position, they failed to watch for the enemy scaling the cliffs. We enjoy an exalted position in Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking, we are in Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God with him. You can't get any higher than that, spiritually speaking. Does that render us impregnable from attack? Well, quite the contrary, as you know, the devil is scaling the cliffs right now, seeking to engage you in battle. Never forget that you are in a war, a spiritual war, and that you will be until you go to be with Jesus. The moment you let down your guard and fail to watch, that is the moment your enemy will advance, seeking to gain an advantage by which he can attack your work and your witness. He may come all at once, like a flood, or he may come over a period of time setting up his strategies. I, I, in this analogy of the cliffs, I, 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 you see those guys, maybe some of you are rock climbers, you know, and they, they like sleep on sheer walls, you know, they just kind of hammer in their stuff and they put up a hammock and they're sleeping there, hundreds and thousands of feet in the air and stuff. If you give the devil ground, he'll climb 
Maybe if you kind of get back on track, he'll just stop, he'll just wait there, but he's gained ground, and eventually he's coming up over the rise if you fail to keep your guard all the time. The Sardians were next exhorted, strengthen the things that remain. They should rally around those who were still active. They should come alongside them to help them in their works. There were some good works remaining being done by some folks that we'll see uh, in the last couple of verses, and they should come alongside of this. They might help through prayer. They might help by giving to the work. They might get physically involved. Now, I mentioned that God gives gifted men to the church. In Ephesians, where gifted men are introduced as gifts to the church, we're further told it is for, quote, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. You and I come together to be equipped to be built up. Whatever other reasons we come together, uh, you know, and whatever's on our heart, one of the major things the church gathers to do is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The basics of that involve worshiping the Lord, preaching the word of God, and of course, having fellowship with one another as we minister to one another with the gifts that God has given us. From those very basic things, those things, they, they have to happen. There has to be worship, there has to be the word, and people given opportunity to fellowship. From those basic things, um, everything else that is needed uh, flows to support them. Things like childcare and children's ministry, ushering, sound crew, grounds crew. We should have just enough to support not too much, but we do need support ministry. You know, a lot of times the church comes under criticism. Oh, why do we need a building? And why do we need this? And why do we need that? Those are all individual decisions that each church has to make. It's not why do we need a building? You might say, why do we need this building as opposed to that building? Uh, and hopefully you can give a testimony of the Lord's leading. Well, because the Lord led us. That, that's the, how's that for an answer? Uh, but you need to meet you can meet in houses, you can meet in a building, you can meet in a stadium, it doesn't matter, the Lord said you're to meet. Why? Because you're to worship the Lord and you're, you're to use the word of God to build up and equip the saints. And, and, and everything else uh, around that uh, you know, is important and is necessary. We come together to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Having been equipped, what is the work of the ministry? Well, we go out as missionaries literally, to the world, to our respective homes and jobs and schools. We are built up in our most holy faith to go out and tell other people what we know to be true, that Jesus Christ is God, that he died and rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, that he's coming again, and that your sins can be forgiven and you can have eternal life. That's our job. It's a great spiritual strategy for spreading the gospel. It's Great, because it's God's strategy. It's the strategy of Jesus Christ. He is building his church and he's equipping the church with the gifts and the talents and the abilities that he's given to go out into the world. And, and you see the effect of it. Uh, you know, whatever we might say to criticize the church, church is always being criticized. It has endured to the year 2015 and through those years, multiplied millions, maybe even billions of people have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior through that simple plan of a person sharing Christ with another person, that person being built up in their faith and sharing Christ with other people. It's very simple. It works unless or until Christians quit being involved along the way, unless there's unfinished spiritual business like there was in Sardis, and that's the point that Jesus is making. Now, in verse three, the Lord tells them how to return to life, and he tells them what he must do if they refuse. 
He says in verse three, remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. To return to life, they must only remember how they had received and heard, hold fast to that and repent. So the question is, how did they receive and hear? Well, we don't know exactly how the church in Sardis was founded. It's not, we're not told that in scripture, but we do know how other churches were founded. A saint like the Apostle Paul would go into a city or a town and he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with power. Those who responded to the grace of God by faith were miraculously born again by God the Holy Spirit. In the accounts that are given, we see that when they received and heard, it was usually, if not always, accompanied by a visible dynamic empowering by God the Holy Spirit. For example, in Acts chapter 10, While Peter was preaching to Cornelius and his household, they all got saved. The Holy Spirit manifested that by them speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul had baptized the disciples of John the Baptist, they too spoke with tongues and it says they prophesied. In the city of Thessalonica, something very different happened. Paul said, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. So there was a manifestation of the Spirit's power as well. And then he went on to describe how it was that they were gifted by the Holy Spirit as evangelists because he said, from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. There is not any one thing that is the physical evidence of the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. Because so often in the book of Acts, folks who received the Holy Spirit also spoke in tongues. There are those who insist that is the evidence of at least being spirit-filled, if not of salvation itself. And some of you come from a church background like that, where you went to church and they said, have you been filled with the Spirit? And you say, well, how would I know? Well, you, you would speak in tongues. Why well, don't speak with tongues? And so they, they kind of help you learn how to speak with tongues. Or some go so far as to say, if you don't speak with tongues, you're not even saved. And so there's a real incentive for you to think that you're speaking with tongues. The sad thing about that is that that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Later on, the Apostle Paul will teach in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere that speaking in tongues is a specific spiritual gift that some believers receive, but others do not. Same with prophecy. Uh, Same with evangelism. And and so the idea here is that there is a manifestation of the Spirit's power when a person gets saved, but there's no one particular manifestation that you can point to and say, okay, that's it. In Thessalonica, as I said, the Spirit seemed to manifest himself more with a gift of evangelism than anything else. When a person receives and hears, there is a dramatic, dynamic change Think of some of the metaphors uh, talking about salvation. One is that you go from darkness to light. You ever been, well, this happens to me every morning. Dark in our house, dark in our room. I get up and I don't know why, I I don't know why I'm obsessed with my phone, Uh, but I admit it. And, And so the first thing I do is I unplug my phone and when I unplug it, the screen comes on and it blinds me. And oh, what What happened? It's no brighter than it's going to be the rest of the day, but because my, I've been sleeping all night and it's a dark room, there's a stark contrast between darkness and light. Uh, we're, we talk about salvation from death to life. That's a pretty stark contrast. 
something that's dead and comes alive. The only example I can think of is, you know, maybe sometimes you'll think, uh, like maybe an animal is laying there, you think, I wonder if it's dead, and you poke it, next thing you know, it's on your face, you know, and stuff, biting your nose off, uh, and stuff. But so from death to life, it's kind of an interesting situation. Or the Bible says you turn to God from idols. Some of you have this testimony, you got saved later in life, and all of a sudden, you just left your former life. Maybe you even had to quit your job because of what it was. You got rid of a lot of things. You burned them. You trashed them because now you had turned to God and you didn't want that in your life. So we're talking about some dramatic, dynamic power being released in your life. Not necessarily the gift of tongues, not necessarily prophesying, not necessarily evangelism, but certainly the power of a changed life. And Paul says the word of God doesn't come with you in word only. It's not just words. There is a power in it to change your life. The Sardians, who like all Christians, started with so much light in life, were no longer giving evidence to the Spirit's dynamic empowering of their lives. They had quit seeking the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit and were just coasting. Jesus said, remember and hold fast. Remember is a command. He's telling them, remember how you got saved, and hold fast means fulfill that. I mean, just keep on remembering. It isn't for the sake of nostalgia that we're to think back upon the dynamic of the Holy Spirit coming into and upon us. It's not a longing for the good old days. It is to return to asking and seeking and knocking for him and then yielding to his leading and empowering. That passage in Luke 11 where the Lord says you're to ask and seek and knock for the Holy Spirit. You've heard this taught before here and elsewhere uh, if you've listened to studies in Luke. Uh, It's an ask and go on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and don't stop knocking. It is a continual behavior of the Christian to ask and seek and knock for the Holy Spirit. Now that might challenge your theology that you take that up with Jesus because that's what he says. He says the Holy Spirit is yours He lives inside of you, he's to come upon you, but there are renewable experiences with him that you are to ask and seek and knock for and never stop because when you stop, you become a Sardian and you're just not effective for the Lord anymore. If they did not remember and hold fast, Jesus would come to act. He said, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Don't you like those orc and pest control commercials featuring the giant cockroach that comes to the, or, or the termite, giant termite comes to the door, knocks on the door? Yeah, how you doing? <laughs> and then the homeowner stands there and he looks and he goes, is that, is that mahogany table? <laughs> and then the orkin truck drives by and, and then he runs away and gets, they go off in their old jalopy car, you know, and stuff like that. The, the idea is that you need to be ready when the termite comes. And if you're ready, then he'll flee from you. Well, in, in Sardis, Jesus was coming for a surprise visit and they weren't ready for it. Now, seriously, if you knew that in two hours, Jesus was gonna knock on your door, what would you do? That's the idea here. Jesus wasn't coming to have dinner with him. It wasn't a matter of just picking up and making sure the trash was taken out. He wasn't even coming for an inspection. He was coming, he says, as a thief to take something from them. In other words, he wasn't gonna knock on the door. He was gonna come and take something from them. What was it? Well, he doesn't say, but I think we know. Because earlier in this series of letters, he had told the church at Ephesus, if they failed to repent, he would come and remove their lampstand. 
meaning he would remove their witness for him in the world. They might continue to be a church, they might meet together, but they'd be no more than some social club because they would have no effect. Even the things that remained would die and it would be a completely dead church. Sardis was being put on notice that they too would no longer have that witness. There is one more issue Jesus wanted to address. Verse four, he says, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now we're gonna talk about them in a minute, but right now uh, we wanna focus on those that had soiled their garments. Your salvation in Jesus Christ can be illustrated in terms of becoming appropriately dressed to go to heaven. You know, most people want to be appropriately dressed for whatever it is you're going to, whether it's a formal or an informal event. Uh, I know we're pretty relaxed, you know, we're kicked back, laid back, you know, we're, we're, you know, we set the standard here in Kings County and especially Hanford for the fashion of the world, I know that, you know, where Wranglers and a collared shirt go anywhere. You know, you wanna meet the president of any country, put on a collared shirt, you're good to go. You know, just all you have to do is in your glove box have a, a wrinkled collared shirt and you're ready for any event, I know that. And, uh, but there are times when people, you know, you wanna look appropriately dressed. And, and, and so if you wanna go to heaven, you have to be appropriately dressed. Before you're saved, you're described as clothed with the filthiest possible rags. Isaiah 64, verse six. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, if you could see what you looked like from heaven's point of view, you would be disgustingly dressed in filthy garments. You're thus inappropriately dressed to go to heaven and you have no hope on your own of being let in. If you get saved, you're given a change of clothing as a gift that is appropriate to your new standing in heaven. It is sometimes described as a white robe of righteousness. And so what happens is, uh, Jesus takes your sin upon himself at the cross. He removes your filthy garment, as it were, and he gives you a pure white robe of righteousness uh, that is a gift from him to you, and now you are appropriately dressed for heaven. Once you are given the robe of righteousness, it's yours. You're headed to heaven. But Jesus leaves you on the earth and there are several passages which indicate that your garment, in a sense, it's, it's like picking up defilement. I remember when I was a salesman, I used to wear a tie, and I hated tie bars and tie pins, but I'd always forget, and I would, it would always fall in my soup at lunch. You ever have that happen to you? And so then I would just throw my tie over my shoulder, you know, I'd be like some rube from the, you know, uh, from the plain states or anything. Anyway, and so, uh, you know, but I would get stains. I had to quit wearing white pants. Remember white Levi's? Anybody wear white Levi's? They, 20 seconds into wearing white Levi's, you drop spaghetti sauce on, you're not even eating spaghetti sauce. I mean, just, it's crazy. And so uh, you, you, you can stain, your garment can pick up defilement. By the way, only someone who is saved can be described as defiling their white robe. Remember, if you're not saved, you don't have a white robe. And so when Jesus talks about those defiling their robes, he's talking about Christians. Uh, sure, there were non-believers in Sardis, but he's speaking to Christians here. It seems the vast majority of believers in Sardis were picking up defilement from their fellowship and friendship with the world. Instead of affecting the world in a good way for Jesus, instead of being equipped to do the work of the ministry and sharing Christ, they were being affected in bad ways by the world. 
How many times on TV has the wife found lipstick that wasn't hers on her husband's collar? It's a dead giveaway that he's committing adultery. If a believer committing spiritual adultery, then Jesus sees the evidence as defilement on their robe. All the forensic cop shows on TV eventually spray the room with luminol in order to see traces of blood under the UV light. Don't you anticipate that? You wait for the luminol moment, you know? It's like a must in these crime dramas. Jesus sees what's going on with regards to this spiritual garment that he's given you. And we're not just talking about behavior, he sees your heart and its motives and its meditations. And so there was a remnant in Sardis who had not defiled their garments. They weren't perfect, but they were walking with him seeking to be worthy of the name of Christian. But the vast majority uh, were just carnal, backslidden Christians. Now in context, what we've learned from Jesus in this letter, uh, the minority, the remnant, must be those who are filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, ministering in the power of the Spirit. Here in this portion of the letter, Jesus only gives you two choices. There's only two groups that you can be a part of, and you have to identify with one or the other. You're either zombies or you're zealots. Is zealot too strong a word? Shouldn't we be zealous in our love and service to Jesus Christ? Isn't zeal a powerful and positive attribute? Even Jesus had zeal for his father's house. It led him to overturn the tables of the money changers. So we're to be zealous as we serve the Lord. You are wanted not dead but alive in the spirit in order to tell others about Jesus. And the formula for it is to ask and keep on asking and to seek and keep on seeking and to knock and keep on knocking as God desires to give you his Holy Spirit. Now, in verses five and six, we wanna see these uh, small group, this remnant being presented in heaven. The Lord continues his discussion of those who are walking with him in white, showing them their future. Verse five, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and his angels. The church is often called the bride of Christ. We will see in chapter 19 of the Revelation that the church, the bride, returns to the earth with Jesus at his second coming, and there we read, we are arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we just had a long discussion about receiving the robe of righteousness as a gift when you get saved. It can't be earned or achieved. It has to be given to you. So why in Revelation 19 is it said that the robe has the righteous acts of the saints, the things that the saints have done? Well, listen to this from Isaiah 61.10. It explains it. Isaiah says, it's the Lord speaking, he says, I will greatly rejoice. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so there's two things going on there. God clothes you with the garments of salvation. That's the robe of righteousness. But then as you walk with the Lord, instead of defiling your garment, you have the privilege of adorning it with good works. The robe becomes a sort of a foundation garment that I can adorn with my good works. Now, let me give you a a more up-to-date illustration, not a biblical illustration, but something that's up-to-date. How how many of you remember Barry McGuire? Remember Barry McGuire? Bullfrogs and Butterflies, is that still popular today? Children's stuff? Barry McGuire, uh, singer from the... 60s, got saved, and I remember he had one, uh, one big hit, Bullfrogs and Butterflies for Kids, but he also had this song called um, Cosmic Cowboy. Remember Cosmic Cowboy? Anybody remember that? All right. 
So his deal was that, you know, if Jesus came today in today's culture, especially in Kings County, uh, he wouldn't talk about being a shepherd. He'd talk about being a cowboy. He'd be a cosmic cowboy. And it's, it's all, it's fun. It's all in good fun. Uh, if we want to change this uh, illustration of the bride, because I know some of you guys, you're just manly, right? You're just sitting there thinking, you know, Pastor Gene, I understand the Bible says that I'm the bride of Christ, but that's kind of a girly thing. I mean, what are you talking about? A robe and adorning it, and am I gonna get my hair done, my nails? You know, I mean, what, what's that gonna be like? And so I have a better illustration for you manly men. You've seen, you're familiar with uh, these external, they're called external carrier vests. Uh, policemen wear them, law, uh, uh, military personnel have them. It's, an, it's a vest that they wear outside of their uniform that carries their Kevlar, but then it has a loop and Velcro system by which you can attach all kinds of cool stuff. <laughs> if I was totally cool or just an idiot, uh, I have one as my, in my work as a chaplain. I could have been wearing it the whole time. You'd think, what's going on with Pastor G? And it build up to this illustration. But I think stuff like that detracts from the word of God. But anyway, and, and you've got all this. So I've got a little flashlight holder and a badge holder and a little you know, utility pouch and a radio holder. And I'm, I'm all good to go. I've adorned my basic vest that protects me and keeps me with these other things. I don't have to have anything on there, but then I look like a rube, you know? I mean, the other cops would say, what's the matter with you? You know, you're not riding with me. You can get some gear, you know, and stuff. And so that's the idea. So if you, whenever I talk about the bride of Christ adorning herself, you men, manly men, you can have that bubble on your head that goes to the Molly system of uh, Velcro and loop vests and stuff. So that's for you guys. Uh, but that's the idea. You can add to yourself rewards, and you should, because Jesus says he's going to confess your name before his father and his angels. Think of it as a fiancé meeting the groom's father for the first time. In our case, God the Father already knows us, but it will be the first time we meet him in heaven, and you're going to want to be as beautiful as Jesus can make you by accumulating good works for which you receive rewards. You're gonna be presented in heaven, not defiled, but spotless. My understanding is that at the reward seat of Jesus, all that does not belong in heaven will be burned away. He first, therefore, presents you to himself spotless, gets rid of all the wood, hay, and stubble, rewards you for all the good that you've done in, uh, motivated solely by him and his spirit, and rewards you for that, decks you out, and then he presents you to the Father. And so the question is, will you be presented in just your robe of righteousness or will you be totally decked out for the Lord? And, and you may not think now, but you're gonna wanna be decked out for the Lord to show your love for him and to show his father and your father uh, how much you appreciated the gift of your salvation. Now, I haven't forgotten the phrase, I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Let's get into that. In identifying the book of life, I think the first thing you must account for is the fact that a person's name can be removed from it and not be found in it anymore. There are commentators who argue that there is no explicit statement that a name can be blotted out, but that's clearly what Jesus means. Why even bring it up if it's an impossibility? Plus, there are scriptures that seem to indicate names can be blotted out of the book of life. Here's an exchange between God and Moses in Exodus. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. 
And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Then in Psalm 69, verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Now, when you think about those verses, they, and if they are referring to this same book, which they clearly are, we've just learned that at some point, the names of non-believers are blotted out so that only the names of believers or those that are called righteous remain in it. It would seem, therefore, that the book of life begins with the names of everyone ever conceived, but in the end lists only those who believe in Jesus Christ by having had his righteousness given to them by grace through faith. John Walvoord writes and he says, it is a list of those for whom Christ died, that is, all humanity who have possessed physical life. As they come to maturity and are faced with the responsibility of accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ, their names are blotted out if they fail to receive Christ as Savior. Those who do accept the Lord are confirmed in their position in the book of life. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that everyone starts out in the book. You read in 1 Timothy 4.10, we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. We don't believe we don't teach that everyone will be saved. We don't believe in universalism. But that scripture tells us that everyone has the potential of being saved because Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Those are the ones who actually get saved. And so this would tie into our book of life. Everyone's name starts out in the book. If you die without ever being born again, then your name is blotted out of the book of life. Here's some Bible math. If you are only born once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you only die once, if at all. Here's how that works. You're born once physically. If you are never born a second time, if you're never born spiritually, if you're never born again, you will die physically and after that you will die eternally by being cast alive into the lake of fire and that is called the second death. And so if you're only born physically, you're going to die twice. You're gonna die and then face the second death for eternity. If you are born again, you might die physically if the rapture doesn't occur in your lifetime, or you might be taken in the rapture and never die, but you are alive eternally. Verse six, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I miss those can you hear me now Verizon ads. You remember those? Can you hear me now? And the idea was that the technician had fixed it so that you could get a strong cell signal. You wouldn't have any drop calls, there wouldn't be any miscommunication. Uh, you know, there's, there's always that moment when there's, you don't, you don't know what is being said. Uh, and so he says, yeah, can you hear me now? I think this is a kind of a modern way of saying what Jesus has been saying to the church every time. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus is saying, hey, can you hear me now? because I am putting my finger on exactly what is going on in your church in Sardis, in your church in Ephesus, in your church in Thyatira, in your church in Pergamos, in your church in Hanford. I'm telling you what goes on in all churches all the time if you're careful and if you're not careful. And so we can't just listen to this and think that's not us. We're not dead, I'm not dead. The only possible response is, Lord, am I dead? Are there areas of my life where I'm dead and there's just a few things that remain alive? 
The same thing about our church. We need to rehearse these things all the time. The Lord is here in power with grace to show us what's really going on. And I'd rather he show us graciously and wonderfully than come as a thief and remove our place of ministry or, or to do something like that to where we're totally ineffective for him. Because all of us that love the Lord, I know in the deepest part of our hearts, we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. You don't have to be exhorted about that. You need to be encouraged about that. We want that. We want to share the Lord and we want to know how and the Lord says, I'll tell you how. Ask and seek and knock and I will give you the Holy Spirit. So let's do that.